This week, Talking TV is brought to you by Pop-Up Post Firm, The Finish Line. Dealing with everything from consulting to full post and delivery, they've worked on mutiny, GPs behind closed doors and lawless oceans, to name a few. Hello and welcome, I'm Peter White. On today's show, we take stock of the TV industry as commissioners and producers return from the Easter break, refreshed from their ski breaks and Barbados beach holidays. In the news, we shine a spotlight on BBC Studios' first fortnight as a commercial beast, take a look at Channel 4's future after the government announced a consultation, and investigate what's happening with the televised political debates after Theresa May called a snap election. We also travel to space to profile Channel 4's forthcoming blue-chip documentary, Man-Made Planet, produced by Live From Space Indie Arrow Media. That's all coming up on Talking TV for Broadcast. Joining me at Maple Street Studios is Broadcast Features Editor Robin Parker. How are you, Robin? I hear you've got your swimming shorts packed for a trip to Malta. I'm going to test the cannonball experience next week in Malta with, uh, with ITV, so if I survive to tell the tale, I can... Bring up speed with that later. We're going to see you uh, on the water park yourself. I shall have final veto over the photos. That's all I can <laughs> say for that one. <laughs> First up, BBC Studios. Uh, the Strictly Come Dancing producers' top talent have been making aggressive moves to secure third-party commissions during its first two weeks as a commercial subsidiary. Producers have been meeting and pitching commissioners from ITV, Channel 4 and Channel 5, with Netflix and Amazon in their sights. How significant is this, Robin? It feels like BBC Studios is finally getting on the front foot since they became a, a commercial beast. Yes, um, I mean, clearly the, the idea has taken time to bed in within the industry from the initial kind of worries and, uh, and uproar about commercial competition. The commercial sector seems, seems you know, ready, ready for this now. Certainly in the last indie survey we did, indies were, you know, resigned to the fact that this, this is not, a, not an if, it's, it's a when, and it's happening now and there's no point in, in hanging around. And obviously BBC Studios themselves want to prove that they've got that commercial muscle to flex. So, yeah, small surprise in some way that they are moving quite quickly. Yeah, getting out and about. Um, we heard this week from Aisha Raphael, who uh, produced Murdered by My Father and runs the documentary unit. She was particularly vocal, saying, you know, they want to do factual drama for, for the likes of ITV and Channel 4. Do you think BBC Studios will find some sort of quick success? I mean, you can certainly see in factual, you know, there's a there's a very, very strong history of BBC in factual that where there's places that other broadcasters and other production companies haven't gone. I think with factual drama, I mean, ITV Studios have an incredibly good track record of that kind of thing. And while there are undoubtedly some successes in that area at the BBC, it is a genre which I think is finding a favour everywhere. So, yes, there's a market for it, but there's also some other very willing and capable suppliers. But I'm sure that there'll be other BBC specialities, perhaps in the more specialist factual area, where they can feed into some of the things that other broadcasters want to do. And I think for those BBC producers who are used to making things perhaps in a very sort of formal or formatted style, you would hope that they may want to break free and try some some, some different things, some different formats, some different structures for places like Channel 4, Sky and so on. I thought it was interesting she mentions carnage the simon amstel film i think that's quite a, a special case i mean that is the kind of thing which feels like a bbc player. let's let the talent go off and make something on the quiet and then really then give them full control and let them release it perhaps closer to a, a netflix kind of idea than a, a public service broadcaster idea or a commercial broadcaster idea so it'd be interesting to see if, if that carries on and then on the scripted side you've got the drama teams and the comedy teams but you know as it stands, they make very BBC programming. Do you think those guys will have the the ability to make shows for an ITV or, or even a Netflix or an Amazon? 
Um, well, I think so in some ways. I mean, comedy at the moment, you know, comedy at the moment is, is a fairly struggling genre in terms of the number of slots available and and the breadth of stuff that, that's being commissioned. So I'm sure that there are writers and producers out there who would, would want to to look for new opportunities. And I think the divisions between what works on different channels is probably narrowed quite a bit in recent years. And so Channel 4 have talked about that. You know, what do they do that BBC Three doesn't, for example? It's, it's definitely, definitely a blurring of the lines. So it, it may just be that there's, there's more opportunities for stuff to get made that was logjam before. As a betting man, when do you think uh, BBC Studios might strike its first uh, commission? Well, it'll be interesting to see what these sort of commission reactions are in a way. I mean, you know, these are rival broadcasters having to get into this new mindset. But with the team that's there and with the will to, to proceed, you would think... It's going to be months rather than years. Next up, Channel 4 is set to enter a new chapter after the government launched a consultation into its future. Uh, the DCMS published a 36-page consultation document and asked the industry and the public for their views, focusing on the level of Channel 4 spending in the nations and regions, where the broadcasters should be based, and whether it should be able to invest more than 25% in indie producers. Where do you think uh, Channel 4 will end up, Robin? Are we seeing the move to Birmingham? Well, it's interesting, one, isn't it? And I'm sure we've, we've touched on this within the magazine and on the podcast in recent months you know it is a different case to the bbc moving up to salford with a huge number of staff and production units this is essentially you know a publisher moving closer to some to some of its suppliers and then the question being well those suppliers still need to go to london for other broadcasters so what, what are the benefits to a wholesale move but it does seem as though the government has been talking you know when rather than if uh, certainly in the language that they've expressed this in perhaps starting to channel four in the industry's surprise that this it seems to be okay well privatization's off let's look at this instead what i would expect channel four privately be hoping is if there is some regional move it'll be some satellite offices some as they've had in in scotland before where you do have people who are close to regional suppliers who feed back into the the mother network and, and there's talk of the uh, digital department perhaps the all four business and maybe even some sort of daytime commissioners moving out to, to leeds or manchester or birmingham rather than necessarily the entire the entire business yeah and so you can see you know that the, these sort of um, digital hubs are springing up in places like manchester and birmingham and and certainly Channel 4 in the past has, uh, again, has had success in Glasgow with, with some of the, the smaller games companies and multi-platform companies they've worked with there. So, you know, there is a track record there and, and there is a market that they can tap into. Right now, I don't I mean, I don't get the sense that Channel 4 itself is, is keen to sell up and, and move on. It does feel like there is a need for it to have a presence in the capital, which is still substantial. I'd be very surprised if, if it went the whole hog while ITV and Fiverr big chunks of the BBC are still in London. Yeah, and it seems that even northern producers aren't that keen for, to move out of Horse Free Road either. No, I mean, if it, if it turns up down the road from them, fine, great, but they're still going to travel. Well, look, we'll see, uh, we'll see soon enough uh, after the consultation ends. Moving on to one of the bigger stories of the week, we talk politics after Theresa May ruled out appearing in any political debates ahead of the general election on June 8th. The BBC and ITV are working hard on plans to televise the debates between leaders because of the overwhelming public interest. Opposition leaders said May should be empty-chaired by the broadcasters if she refused to participate in the debates. Do we think we'll see an empty chair with uh, with the Prime Minister's name on it? I mean, it's possible. I mean, as our register, Chris Curtis, says in his leader, we have been here before, and only actually two years ago. What happened then was you had this sort of strange hodgepodge of, of shows. I mean, I get the impression that she's... She's not going to want to do a three or four headed debate with with other leaders. It may be that we go down some specials where over the course of an hour and a half you hear from all, from three or four leaders and, and she's one of them. But to host the event with the empty chair would just feel very odd, particularly 
it's going to be the case of how big is her majority rather than can she win again. Yeah, absolutely. It, it does feel like a repeat of 2015. You had ITV were the only channel that aired a debate between all of the leaders. It seemed there were quite a few of them. BBC did Jeremy Paxman, the famous Ed Miliband, uh, Miliband oh. line. So yeah, we'll see whether Jeremy Corbyn and, and Tim Farron can persuade her otherwise. But it does feel like uh, we're going to move to a different model this time. It does. And I think, you know, the danger in what we had last time and then what we had around ahead of the Brexit vote, it's becomes a bit of a distortion it's whoever's got the biggest mouth really who wants to be on tv you end up giving perhaps more credence to other parties who are not at the same level as the conservatives and and labor you end up giving voice to people like nigel farage and ukip as question time will often do because they want to be on tv more and they want to say and they've got things to say and they'll get good sound bites whereas this really is about the leaders of the three main parties more than anyone else there's obviously a huge imbalance if one of them doesn't want to speak who's going to step into the fray yeah, no, absolutely. And it does seem that we'll, uh, this is a changing uh, changing story, so uh, I'm sure it'll be updated even in days and, and, and weeks. And you can read more on all of these stories, as well as news on UK TV's latest commissioning plans and a behind-the-scenes report on BBC comedy Hospital People in this week's mag or online at broadcastnow.co.uk. Interview time now. It's been 45 years since astronauts on board Apollo 17 took the famous blue marble image of Earth. Now, current astronauts, including Tim Peake and Don Petit, reveal the astonishing changes in planet Earth since then for a new Channel 4 documentary. Mame Planet is produced by Arrow Media and co-founder and creative director of the company, John Smithson, joins us in the studio, alongside executive producer Ash Potterton. Hello, chaps. Hello. And uh, before we hear from John and Ash, uh, let's play a clip of the show. The first photo of the whole Earth taken by a human. In the 45 years since the image was captured, our population has doubled, and our home planet has been transformed. Looking at Earth from space, we see that as human beings, we adapt. Told from a unique perspective, this is the story of our impact on planet Earth. This is our home, but it's not our planet. We don't own it. The future owns it. That was Man Made Planet. So, guys, how, how did the show come about? It was one of these unusual ones in that we actually got an email from Channel 4 saying, would we think about doing a programme for a season that was pegged around Earth Day? And that we were asking a few companies to come up with ideas. My instant reaction was, that's a bit of a poison chalice or a you know, the TV commissioning equivalent of a sort of hospital pass because environmental programs, I've just always had this attitude, never touch them with a barge pole because that's sort of a no-win. I personally find a lot of them preachy and over-polemic and do-goody and tell you off and there's a certain rhythm and creative shape to them that I don't particularly like. And I didn't want to do a show like that. And also I was worried that it would never rate. And it was going to be a difficult commission. So was it just getting to the start line? Was it worth considering when you've always got a number of options on the go? But I had a quick exchange backward and forward with John Hay, the guy who sent the email and there was a sort of idea that suddenly seemed to be our get out of jail from 
or, or what persuaded that perhaps we would do a show, and that was to use our experience working with NASA, our access with NASA, uh, because of the great experience we had when Arrow made Live from Space, linked by Dermot O'Leary, direct to the International Space Station, two documentaries in the run-up to it, and then a live show, which did really well, rated really well, won awards, you know, done by my colleague Tom Brisley, my fellow creative director. And that showed us that maybe space is a good way into the story. So we thought, well, who has the best view of the planet and changes to the planet? It's the astronauts. And maybe if we do it from their POV, and because we knew about all the fantastic visual material you can get from the International Space Station, suddenly this idea emerged when we found really quickly that it was the 45th. Okay, 45th is not the best anniversary ever, but it was 45 years ago that the first ever photograph was taken by an astronaut that showed all of the planet in this one is the blue, go. Blue marble image. The, the, the famous blue marble image. This was in 1972, one of the most iconic and distributed images ever. And why didn't we use that as the starting point and see what had happened to the planet in those 45 years? One simple idea. And we suddenly thought, well, this could be exciting and avoid some of the pitfalls that we felt environmental programmes often fall into. So you brought in the astronauts' idea. How much of the rest of it was laid out in John's initial uh, pitch to you? It was a blank sheet of paper. I just emailed him this idea, and he got it immediately because he knew all about life from space. Yeah. So very quickly the idea had traction, and I think it was commissioned quite early. But then we were trying to do something really big and ambitious, and then you hit the usual financial issues but big international story. So I think by bringing in a co-production partner with Smithsonian and a distribution partner with Fremantle, we suddenly had a way to just about get a budget to try and deliver the ambition we all wanted for the film. How difficult was it then to encourage the likes of Tim and Don to, to take part? Was, the, was to working with the astronauts tricky? Not really. I mean, it was a... What we found was that for them, the kind of opportunity to talk about this this particular aspect of their time in space you know about looking back at the earth was something that uh, they spoke about very profoundly and you know it was just something that, that resonated with them very strongly and I think the impact of that the kind of legacy that the visions that they described the images that they remember seeing were still so sort of were marked so strongly in their minds that actually it worked uh, you know it dovetailed seamlessly with the imagery that we had and uh, we can go on to talk more about that but the kind of the you know the time lapse sequences that we had from space and the satellite imagery. Yeah, let's uh, that talk about that. How, how did you put it together? What was the the, the craft of that? Sure. I mean, I guess the first thing I say is that the director Kenny Scott did an absolutely amazing. Um, you know, did an amazing job. The scale of this film was epic, and you've got a film about the planet and the changing of the planet, but you've got to squeeze it all into forty-seven minutes. I think really a sort of guiding principle, if you like, was to come back to how can that viewpoint of space 
trace and form about what we're learning about the Earth and how it's been changing. Because there's so many different elements to it, you know, the time-lapse imagery, the time-lapse sequences that we had, amazing uh, archive from the International Space Station, actuality down on Earth. We used drones at every location. And really what we were trying to do was to provide a kind of a seamless transition from space down to Earth and back up both visually and logically in terms of the narrative as well. Often some of those time-lapse sequences would do that for us, but there were, you know, we would always revert back to that point of what are we learning by looking down from space at the Earth? And so when, for example, you learn that Western cities look orange because of uh, the glow of sodium streetlights, whereas in Asia they have a green tinge of mercury, or, for example, that astronauts look down and in the desert they see these, uh, what they describe as looking like pixels, which are the agriculture that the farmers are growing in the desert, then everything else falls into place really and that really provided the structure for it and then you but you meld it with some regular regular stories exactly although it's interesting you described them as regular i mean on one level these people i mean the reason we chose them is that they embody kind of the challenges that humanity faced to secure ever more shelter food water and energy for our survival but while still preserving the planet but actually a number of their stories are extraordinary you know, you've got an, an ultra marathon runner who's climbed Kilimanjaro 500 times uh, you've got a, you know a farmer who's turning the desert in Jordan green with you know one of the biggest organic farm in Jordan and you, we've got for example a young tech entrepreneur in Shenzhen this mega city that's emerged over just a matter of decades and he's as old as the city is and really they they embody those challenges that we face but also there's something quite appealing about coming down visually about literally coming down from space to almost sort of pick out and zero in pluck out you know one person from somewhere on the earth who's going to embody uh, that story what's the challenge in putting that together then with footage from space I think really it's it's about giving a seamless transition between the two because that is really that was one of the sort of biggest challenges I think structurally within the film was to find that way to come down from space to the earth and then quite often to get back up again and really we were looking for sort of whatever opportunity we could seize to sort of do that fluidly and seamlessly and there are nice moments where for example Nicole Stott one of the astronauts says um, that looking down on cities, it's like the mute button is on because you can see this huge city down there, but obviously you're not hearing anything beyond the hum of the ISS. And then we have a moment where on the ground where actually one of our contributors happens to be an amateur astronomer and we then have him looking up and spotting the ISS going overhead in the uh, sky, in the night sky above Las Vegas. And so it's really trying to capitalise on this, on those moments to move seamlessly between the Earth and space, and that helps give the film a lot of its fluidity. What really helps, and we knew this from having done Live from Space, there's a new generation of astronauts who are incredibly articulate and compelling characters. So we historically associate astronauts with all these, the Wright Staff era, and a lot of them were pretty monosyllabic and very much low-key about what they did, even though they were heroic. This new generation are brilliant at talking with an edge of emotion and compassion about the planet that they call home. And that, you know, and we knew sort of where to look for the right astronauts and were able to cast some of the people who we knew could deliver. You know, we sort of had a rule on this film. We really didn't want experts... You wanted them to be more fun. We, want, not some, not some, we wanted it to be 
informative and entertaining rather than just packing it with any one of the 500 experts that you could have or a thousand experts it just made it we hope a more attractive and compelling and informative uh, show to watch. I think that's a really important point. It, it feels, and you know, if you watch a, the trailer on Channel Four, and if you, you know, even if you see the images in the press, it feels like a, a film that you would want to come to in its own rights because it's going to be an extraordinary watch. Now, it happens to be a film that also delivers a really important message about the balance of our planet and the steps that we're taking to both kind of safeguard our future, but which also might threaten our future. But it doesn't. You would have no sense from the outset that it would be beating you over the head. You know, feeling like you're going to be taught a lesson. Or, or preached at, you know, above all, it feels like it's going to provide, it's going to promise, and it does deliver a wondrous visual spectacle. It was a really fine line because it would be so easy, you know, I described it the other day as to do a suicide note to the planet. We're doomed, everything is bad. But we also made it a love letter to the planet and that there's so much that you could celebrate about the beauty of the planet. There's so much you could celebrate about the resourcefulness of individuals who are adapting to a planet that is grown by, what was it, four billion people in the... It's doubled uh, since 1972. Since, since that picture was taken, the population of the world has doubled. So by trying to have, have it deliberately to be celebratory as well as pointing out some of the issues about that massive growth in population was the sort of line that we delicately sought to um, tread. And you alluded to the budget being, you know, this is a big blue chip series and you needed co-production partners on board. You, you couldn't really necessarily make this for a Channel 4 budget. Well, we were filming in China. We were filming in Jordan. We were filming in Tanzania, sourcing lots of archive, lots of CGI to bind it all together. Detailed research. It wasn't something you could just knock out for tariff. You talk about the not being able to knock it out for tariff, but this is the kind of genre that would lend itself for a global audience. I think we talked to Fremantle about it quite early and they were very supportive and immediately saw its international potential. Also, um, Earth Day is not, you know, it's not that big a deal in the UK, but in other countries of the world, Earth Day is a much bigger uh, event. Is there a danger over the last few years, there was a piece in the New York Times this week about it, that, that people see these incredible space launches and, you know, since they you know, first started, that actually you need to do something even more spectacular to get people to watch this type of programming? I don't think so. I mean, fundamentally, you know, this isn't a film about space. It's a film about the Earth. It just happens to be about a unique perspective on the Earth, about seeing it from space. From that perspective, it delivers something that's markedly different from even the type of stuff you know that Arrow have done in this area before. And it doesn't feel like we're in competition with a kind of a subgenre that's preceded it. It really does feel like a very kind of distinct offering. It is undeniable that being an astronaut is, you know, a fantastic job and actually getting a sense of how the Earth looks from up there is great. In actual fact, what this film does, it kind of combines both space travel, but also because you're seeing the Earth, you know, it's changed over decades, it kind of combines space tr travel and time travel and what could be sort of cooler than that. <laughs> I think you have to work harder to make space work as compelling TV and, and, you know, given all the ratings pressure there is right now. And there used to be a feeling that space was a bit of a ratings death zone. Now, we proved that wrong with the backing of Channel 4, with the success of Life from Space. But because we approached it and my colleagues approached it 
by doing it live with the Dermot, with the brilliant astronauts we had, we somehow brought space to a new generation. And we saw in the audience breakdown for that, that you were attracting by doing space now rather than just yet another retelling of the man on the moon and the early adventures it seems that that still does attract an audience and that did give us the confidence to allow the astronauts to tell the the story of earth from space it's a territory we're obviously going to think more about what's next for arrow media what else have you got on the uh, on the books that you can tell us we are as ever taking the storytelling looking at blending there's real appetite for combining that storytelling with a sort of an ambitious sort of tech edge. Look what happened with Planet Earth and the ratings they got there with all that sort of state-of-the-art photography and all that fancy kit. We're doing a lot in the crime area in the US and the UK. Uh, We're doing some big high-end things, some feature documentaries, a lot of projects across the board in the big tent that is factual or non-scripted as they would say in America and and quite a few things on the go in in the UK and just trying to handle what is a challenging market as I say it's all about the storytelling but the innovative ways that you do that storytelling well good guys looking forward to to seeing the show man-made planet airs at 8 p.m on Saturday and that's your lot for this week's episode of Talking TV, which was sponsored by The Finish Line. You can see some of their recent work on Windfall Films series Mutiny for Channel 4, which sees nine men recreate the gruelling journey of Captain William Bly and his loyal crewmen. Thanks to John, Ash and Robin. I'm Peter White, and the producers are Matt Hill and Chica Ayers. We'll see you on the other side.